Would you stand with me as we read, please? This morning we're reading from Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, fathers, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they should come in this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. It was a a privilege to go into mourn with Grant and Tracy uh, these past two days, and they asked me specifically to uh, express their gratitude to you and to send their love to you uh, and to say thank you. Uh, That trip for Jennifer and I to go and to be at Caleb's funeral was enabled uh, by some of you, and so I wanted to say that I could not be more grateful to be part of a community of faith that sees needs like that and meets those needs and enables those kinds of things to happen. So uh, all this fall and leading right up to Advent, we've been making our way through the parables of Jesus, trying to understand out of the midst of these short stories, uh, these metaphors, how Jesus communicates and what he's teaching to us. It's an incredibly profound uh, form of communication and one that is in many ways timeless. And today we're focusing on a parable that begins zeroing in on money, but really isn't about money per se, as it is about belief. Money is simply a symptom or manifestation of what belief really is. And it's important as you start to wade into the parable to understand it from that perspective, that the money bit is an important bit, but it is also a symptom or manifestation of the larger issue at hand, which will be revealed after death. The parable begins for us with 
two characters. On the one hand, you have a rich man. And the rich man is, uh, the, the, the language there that he has is dressed in purple and fine linen basically means to communicate that he's got fancy clothes and fancy underwear. That's how fancy this guy is. And he eats sumptuously every day, which is a, uh, a hallmark of being truly wealthy in the ancient world. If you have enough resources to eat well every day, you are rich indeed. And on the other side, you have Lazarus, who interestingly is the only named character of any parable. And so we would rightly presume that this name probably is of some significance, given that it's been used. And to alleviate any potential confusion, there are two men named Lazarus in the New Testament. One is the character of this story. The other is the brother to Mary and Martha who was raised from the dead. And we're not talking about that Lazarus. We're talking about solely the character in the story. Lazarus, Lazar, is a contraction of the Hebrew name Eliezer. And Eliezer means uh, that God helps. So that is the notion of the name that this man in this horrible condition is someone who God helps. And what is his condition? Well, he lies at the gate of the rich man as a beggar. Hoping for even a scrap of food. You know, that, that piece of bread that you mop up the grease off the plate with and throw to the dog. This is what the poor man, or what Lazarus is hoping for from the rich man's table. He's covered with sores, and he can't move, right? Because the dogs are licking his sores, which means he's either a cripple or he's near the point of starvation and can't muster the physical strength to move himself. As a result of uh, the sores and as a result of being licked by the dogs, he is unclean according to the law. This is meant to be a picture of essentially the worst life ever. In fact, there was, there was rabbinic teaching at the time that says, um, how do you know you really have a terrible life? You meet one of three conditions. Uh, number one, you don't, have, uh, you're de- you don't have enough money to feed yourself. You're dependent on another person's table. Number two, you're ruled by your wife. We'll leave one that aside, that one aside this morning. Number three, uh, your body is covered with sores. Lazarus meets two of the three rabbinical standards that would define a truly despicable and heart-wrenching life. He is meant to be an image of what, is, uh, what it means to suffer as a truly impoverished person. And to us, that's something that's hard to imagine. That kind of picture isn't uh, readily apparent to us in the world in which we live. But for those of you who have gone with us to India, you know that every day you see that on the streets of Kolkata. Men who are lying about in the streets, covered with sores, and literally being licked by dogs. It's a condition of poverty that exists all around us, and we are simply sheltered from by by virtue of being one of the richest countries in the world. that should... It makes us, um, or should, make us work at reminding ourselves that we are wealthy. Wherever you find yourself on the economic spectrum, on the American side of things, we have to look at a global perspective and understand that A, we are wealthy, and B, that wealth unquestionably affects the way that you think. You can't not be affected by your wealth and by money in the ways that you think. And this has been demonstrated in all sorts of ways, but... I'll give you two 
two, two studies that have been done that demonstrate, I think, this rather well. And one of my favorites is, was simply a, a study that was based on a game of Monopoly. People were brought in to play for 15 minutes, but one person was made the rich player. And he gets double the starting amount of money. He makes double the bonus every time that player passes go. And he gets to roll two die instead of uh, one. And so he gets to move further on the board. And so these players are observed uh, while they're playing the game for just increments of 15 minutes. But uh, as these groups are observed, the way that people behave is pretty fascinating. In fact, what is drawn from the study is that the player who is given more resources, uh, he starts to talk more loudly, starts to brag about how well he's doing. There's a common bowl of pretzels for the two players, and he starts to eat more of the pretzels on average. He moves his game piece with greater sound and starts to make cheers, you know, like you might see at a, somebody making a touchdown at a football game, right? Like, whoo. Then after the game, they're noted for speaking in terms of, uh, of how successfully they navigated the board. Right? How their play was superior to the other person's play. There's no reference to starting off with twice of everything. Only to how much they were able to accomplish as a pretty superb player of Monopoly. The uh, point of the study, I think, is pretty obvious. That we have an innate tendency to take what we have as a gift and what we experience, and to pat ourselves on the back, to think that this is something that we have earned rather than something that we have been gifted. We need to remind ourselves often that the only thing, the only difference between you here now and you being born on the streets of Calcutta is God's sovereign decision. Everything after that is you receiving a gift. And so that's one thing that needs to be put on the table to help us think about wealth and to write our perspective. The other thing is to realize that without any question, the richer you are, the less generous you are. The more money you make, the less you give away. One study among many was the 2012 Chronicle of Philanthropy studied, went through all the internal revenue service records for Americans, who earned at least $50,000 in 2008 across every state, city, and zip code in the United States. And this is what they found. On average, households that earned fifty dollars to $75,000 per year gave 7.6% of their income away. Those who made $100,000 or more gave 4.2%. And those who made $200,000 a year or more gave just 2.8%. So did you hear it? We went from 50000 to 100000 to 200000 And as we went up in annual salary, we went down in percentage of giving from 7.8 to 4.2 to 2.8. So we have, to, we have to kind of put those two things together and say that there's something greedy and um, very dark in our hearts, in which we, the more money we get, the more we pat ourselves on the back and proclaim, acclaim our own success and hard work, and the less generous we are, the more we hold on to it. And this is really what the rich man is being charged with in the parable. His, 
His guilt is not being rich. There's nothing in the Bible that says that it's wrong to be rich. But he has surrounded himself in the, uh, the pleasures that come along with his money. And he's decided to exist in that luxury rather than meeting the need of the person who exists in utter poverty at his very gate. Now, I told you at the beginning, you have to keep in mind that money is simply a symptom of what we're talking about. In other words, money is going to be a way in which to understand what the rich man really believes. Money is a way for us to understand what we really believe. Because you see that um, a great reckoning comes for the two characters. Is it not? The rich man and Lazarus both die. And they're both carried on to the, uh, the afterlife. <clears throat> and you shouldn't think of this parable literally. Right? Jesus is telling a story to make a certain point. It uh, should not be construed necessarily as a literal description of what it looks like afterwards. And I think you will waste a lot of time if you go down that road. In fact, the point of the way that Jesus tells the story is to illustrate the finality of death. The death is a great reckoning, and when they go to death, do you notice that the rich man's perspective hasn't changed? He's in torment, and he looks to Abraham, and he sees Lazarus, and what does he say? Oh, can you get Lazarus over here to comfort me? Right? Send that peasant who happens to be by your side. I'm not going to wrestle with why he's up there and I'm down here, but I just want him to come bring me some water. Right? His, his conception, his understanding of, of what's happening all around him hasn't really changed, but what's important is what Abraham says to him. He says, listen, the chasm has been fixed, and we cannot move to you, and you cannot move to us. In other words, your fortune has been entirely reversed, and now it is too late to do anything about it. While you were content in your pleasure in this life, while you showered yourself with luxury and pleasure, right, the notion is kind of, I hope you enjoyed it, because it's over. And for demonstrating such a lack of love and kindness and compassion to those uh, who are around you on earth, you will receive no compassion now after death. As where Lazarus moves to Abraham's side, it's just the notion of the abode of the righteous. He's in the place that you want to end up in. And Luke has said it, it is an unpacking of Jesus' teaching on wealth in Luke. That our wealth is given as a gift and it is intended to be, to be given over to those in mercy and kindness. Right? As an act that reflects the love of God. And while uh, Matthew says in um, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke will not go in that direction and he will say, no, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And this is that manifestation that, yes, blessed is Lazarus. Blessed he is, not just because he was poor in spirit, which often goes along with being, to some degree, poor. Well, no, I don't want to say that at all. He's poor, and so he's been brought to Abraham's side because blessed are the poor. And this is how that theology is playing out in Luke. And so the the fortunes have been completely reversed, and at death there is a profound reckoning in which Jesus is trying to communicate to the religious elite, those leaders who love their money, the Jews who have not been intent on loving the poor around them. He's communicating to them, be careful. For death is coming, and when death comes, you cannot undo what you have committed to in this life. 
And is it not a great reckoning? Do we not feel the sense of reckoning that week? Many of you perhaps did not know the Woodfins. They were dear uh, members of our congregation until Grant went to medical school three years ago. And this week, their 13-year-old boy died within 24 hours of a brain aneurysm. And they, they live in the wake of that suffering. And Grant was telling some of that story, but when he, he just was shattered and broke down, we began to talk about how he had to go pick out the clothes to bury his son in. And you tell me that's not a reckoning. That at that moment, everything stops. Right? And death is the great crucible of life. It's at that moment at death that you have to say, what do I believe? Will I see my son again or will I not? And have I made a good investment in this faith or have I not? What is occurring at this moment? Because death is final. Caleb is gone and he will not come to them. They will go to him. It's death that causes us to wrestle, and all of us, right, we, we want to push it away. We want to hide it. We do a good job of that as a society. We don't even necessarily like to think about what the Woodfins are going through or what it would be like to lose one of our own children, right? In some ways, a, a worse nightmare. But isn't that the reality for us all? And doesn't that compel us? to think about that reality and to realize that there is a point of finality that you cannot avoid or get around. And it's after that point of finality that you will be judged for how you have spent your time and invested your energies on this earth. And to live not in sight of that, not with a mind toward that, which will influence and affect the rest of eternity, is the most foolish of all decisions. Right? What... What wouldn't the rich man give up at the point in which he's sitting in torment? Right? What meal or rich underwear or pleasurable experience was worth it that it would justify now his inability to experience the joy of being at Abraham's side where Lazarus finds himself? And so this is, this is Jesus' point. He says you have to realize that there's a great reckoning. And two... The, the Jews that aren't taking their faith seriously and are actually acting on what they say they believe. We believe in a, a good and gracious, generous God, and then they hoard their wealth and aren't generous at all. Jesus says, judgment is coming. And once it happens, you cannot pass across that chasm. So be mindful. The rich man begins to get it. But the rich man actually becomes a literal argument for what Jesus is trying to say. Because the rich man in getting it says, oh, well, send someone to my five brothers. They need to change their behavior lest they find themselves where I am. And Abraham says, no, it won't make any difference. They have Moses and the prophets. If someone comes to them from the dead, it's not going to change anything. And he says, no, it will really, it will make a difference. They will hear it. And Abraham says, no, not even if someone was raised from the dead. And Jesus alludes to what's coming. But even in that allusion, he acknowledges that even though the Son of God will die and be raised from the dead three days later, there are many who still will not believe nor change what they do since actions are simply an outpouring of belief. Caleb's service yesterday was, was beautiful. It was in a grand old historic church in Richmond, Virginia. 
And what was shocking, I walked out with the, the family and the ministers involved, and as you walked out, it was an, a very large sanctuary, and it was packed. There, there were at least 800 people there, which is incredibly unusual. In terms of uh, Caleb was homeschooled this year. He was part of a small private school last year. It's not like he's part of an enormous school system that's coming out. There were essentially two communities there. One was the church to love and support the Woodfins. And the other was the medical community, which is almost entirely unbelieving, but because they had been blessed by Grant and Tracy reaching out to them and inviting young homeless students into their house for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, they came out in mass to, uh, to express sympathy with the Woodfins. And in that sense, it was particularly beautiful because uh, there were many scriptures were read and beautiful hymns were sung and it, there was an excellent homily given by their pastor and hundreds of medical students who would think that faith is silly and has no merit for them in terms of engaging this life and their work heard the gospel. And I said many of my colleagues had never heard the gospel. They couldn't tell you what it is and they heard it at Caleb's death. That is the celebration of life service. I got to think, how do you, how do you process that? And I've been wrestling with this passage. You know, why? Part of me wants to say, why, why wouldn't it help? You know, it would be kind of nice. I, I would think a visit from Moses or somebody I've known who has died, you know, shows up and says, listen, uh, this is the way it is on the other side. You need to get things cleaned up. Don't you think that would be a little bit persuasive? Maybe. And so I was thinking, what, what if Caleb showed up at his own celebration of life service and gave testimony to all these medical students and said, yes, I'm with Jesus now and it's glorious. And so be mindful about what you believe and do. Wouldn't that be some kind of impressive testimony? I got to think about it. And how really would people respond? You can't say for sure, but I think you'd hear a lot of, um, there was an odd neurological event in the church, and uh, there was a mass hallucination. And we don't know how to describe it scientifically or medically, but you know, obviously that can't really happen, and so there must be some way to address it. And isn't that the story of Israel itself that has gone through um, not only being introduced to God but having experienced the power of God through uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, being provided for in the wilderness, for the defeat of their enemies as they enter into the promised land, over and over again, God shows up in a demonstrative and exceptional way, and over and over again, Israel says, thanks but no thanks. And they move away from Him in unbelief. And we have to realize that there's something that's so blind about us that our heart is so... It's so hardened that even to experience something that is profoundly miraculous is not something that actually changes our heart all that often. It's something that if our heart isn't right, can easily be dismissed or brushed aside by some explanation. And we realize the the mantra of the church through the ages is that faith proceeds and faith informs understanding. Understanding can't can't inform faith. And that's very difficult to understand. And I've, I've wrestled with it and I continue to wrestle with it. 
But I think there are some really important things to keep in mind as we think about faith, preceding understanding. And then out of that are actions. Going the right direction, being evidence of what we believe. You know, why doesn't, why doesn't God show up in some miraculous burning bush moment for you? Saying, this is what I, I, who I am, and it's nice to meet you, and I'm calling you to be mine, and I'm going to give you miraculous events as you go through your life to testify to my strength and to my power. You have to realize that understanding doesn't cultivate real relationship. Right? So imagine, imagine a, a couple. A husband and a wife, but not yet married, sitting down. And uh, perhaps in, in this scenario, they've never even met. Imagine me meeting Jennifer for the first time, and we sit down, and she lays down on the table a piece of paper, which is a contract. And she says, listen, uh, I've enumerated um, my skill set, my IQ, uh, my knowledge base, uh, my earning potential over the course of my life. Um, I, uh, I'm good to have kids, and I promise to bear you four. And uh, this is my profile. And I think we should get married. Right? And you think, oh, well, here is understanding. Here is a demonstration of commitment. Here is all the information that I need to possess and make a decision. And so I leap in. Yes, woman of my dreams, let's get married. Right? But you know it doesn't work like that. You know our hearts don't work like that. Right? Relationship is born out of experience. Trust is built on acts of faith. You can't have relationship that's purely informational. And so God could show up and do something dramatic, or he could just lay everything out for you in some, some document or some contract and make all his commitments to you but that wouldn't actually change who you are. It wouldn't actually produce faith because how it really goes between Jennifer and I is we meet and we begin to get to know each other over time. And there are times where I say, am I going to trust you and give myself more of you? And she has to decide the same thing. And if we do, and that is is safe and, and is good, then our relationship grows and we're willing to give even more of ourselves to the other side. And it's in that way that I actually give more of myself to Jennifer and she gives more to me and we know each other more intimately rather than her just saying some, you know, showing up and saying, you have no idea the love that I have for you and cutting off four fingers, giving them to me. And said, look, that is my commitment to you. Right? Miraculous. Amazing, perhaps, crazy, yes, run the other direction probably, right? But it does, it's not the same as cultivating a relationship of trust in which I believe in who she is and her commitment to me and as a result of that, growing relationship with her. And that's, of course, just an analogy with God. That as God comes to us and warms our heart and invites us to choose him, it is that that dance then of knowing him, of drawing near to him, and he says, trust me, and you say no. But you decide to a little bit, and you, you're not made a fool of. And you feel a little bit more of his love, and you say, okay, I know you more. I believe you more. I trust you more. So here's a little bit more of me. And so it goes until our relationship deepens and becomes beautiful and actually something that it's supposed to be rather than something that would simply be informed, we think, 
by a miraculous work. God doesn't want your intellectual assent. He wants you. And the only way to come by you is to invite you into that dance. And this is why to the rich man, it doesn't matter if I send somebody from the dead or if I send someone raised from the dead to communicate to him. He's got Moses and the prophets and he either believes God's story and has entered into it and engaged that dance where he's gotten to know God and trust him. And out of that, he handles his money with responsibility and with godliness or he doesn't. And the way he's handled his money reveals that he's never bought the story and he's never moved into it. And so it's the call to all those who are around Jesus. Will you move into the story? Look at the ways in which you handle your money and your time and your energy and your life. Do they actually reveal that you believe the story and say, yes, I believe you, God, and I give myself more of you. I trust you. And then we find more of God in that process. Because the last 24 hours were just, in some ways, brutal in, this, in the sense that you, you are at, you're at the pit of despair where the woodfins are. Right? We've, we've lost our child who we've invested in for 13 years. It is our greatest treasure. And God has taken him from us. And you sit and you mourn and you weep. And there are no words. And it's one of the most powerless places to be. Because there's nothing you can give them. There's nothing that you can undo. And there's no way to make the pain, the numbing, overwhelming pain go away. And I was sharing that earlier uh, with Ryan. And Ryan said... um, He said, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that the incarnation takes the form of the loss of a son. What a statement. That God decides to display himself and show up on behalf of the world in the place of greatest despair. In the place of greatest hopelessness. He says, yes, I know what may be in store for you and I enter into it out of love for you. Will you now trust me? Will you now engage me as one who loves you? Will you enter that dance? To enter that dance is to know joy. It's to know freedom. It is to know even in the midst of inexplicable death, to believe and to trust that Jesus is at work. Jesus didn't decide to require Caleb's life lightly. And I guarantee you that it hurt him. And so I don't know his purpose in it, I believe that there is some purpose. And I decide to trust him because I trust the one who gives up his son that I might live. And it's in that trust and in that belief that I know God's love and out of that love, I engage life and money and energy and time find their proper place. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonder our capacity for arrogance and for pride and for uh, a sense of self-inflatedness. We are all running to death. And I pray this morning that we would not forget it. But instead, being reminded of that great chasm and reminded of that judgment, we would be prone now to run to you. 
and to confess our sin, to confess our greed, and to throw ourselves at your mercy and to be caught up in the arms of Jesus. To be caught up in that way, to know that your love is profound and it is deep. In the incarnation, you have met us really in the worst of all places. So thank you for going there on our behalf, for identifying with us in that pursuit, and for letting us know that in the resurrection, death is ultimately conquered. And for that, we praise you, Lord Jesus.